Now listening to the Acamedia podcast, which is brought to you uh, courtesy of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies, and I am one of your hosts, Christine Becker, and I am Michael Kackman at the University of Notre Dame. And I guess this is probably the last time I'll get to say not at the University of Notre Dame for me. I'll be back in the classroom in January, so all good leaves must come to an end. Yeah, but you know the classroom is calling out to you. <laughs> is it? Yeah. <laughs> come back. Okay. Well, and also, you know, a couple podcasts ago, I, I sort of touted about how I would be here as it was getting colder in South Bend, and I'd be down here in Georgia, and I'd be happy. Literally the same temperature today, where I'm at, as it is back in South Bend. I've been robbed. I've been sold a bill of goods. It's like 48 degrees and sunny here right now. and Exactly. 48 and sunny down You know, so I'm going to go out and go for a swim, and it's going to be good. Yeah. I'm not going to do that, but we're living uh, the dream here in sunny South Bend. Why do you why do you think they call it South Bend? <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess maybe you know climate change is going to change the whole polarity of Oof. you know what it's like to live in these places. So yeah, probably. Mm. All right, we have a we have a a new episode here. Obviously, um, that's why yeah. we're in, we're talking. But we also have a, a new interview from one of our new. Uh, co-conspirators yeah new voice brought to the podcast and so this is jonathan nichols pethick and he is interviewing one of his colleagues at DePaul university jordan shoal um, who wrote an article for jcms has a very long title um, which they're going to deconstruct so i'll let them go through the whole title but it's about media specificity a defense of media specificity um, and then shoal is also co-writer of the 2022 film how to blow up a pipeline so they talk all about that Lots of good stuff. Uh, it's a good kind of think piece that uh, also has all kinds of very, very concrete material consequences. Uh, super smart conversation here. Uh, one contextual note, uh, Jordan Scholl is a member of the WGA, and this interview took place back when the writer strike was still going on. Um, so just heads up about that. But their uh, discussion is really less about the strike itself than tech companies in the entertainment sector and the issue of AI for writers. So it's still relevant to this moment and for better or for worse going forward. All right, take it away. I'm Jonathan Nichols-Pethick, producer for the Acamedia podcast, and I'm here with my colleague, Jordan Scholl, who is an assistant professor at DePaul University, uh, where, full disclosure, I am also a professor of media studies, so we are true colleagues in that sense. And I'm here to talk to uh, Jordan about, uh, one, his... his uh, article in a recent edition of uh, JCMS, which is called A Diachronic, Scale-Flexible, Relational, Perspectival Operation in Defense of Always Reforming Media Specificity, which I think is a tremendous article. And I also, of course, want to talk to Jordan about his role as a co-writer of the recent film, uh, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Uh, and so we're going to get into uh, all of that and see if we can find those connections between two modes of production. So Jordan, welcome to Acamedia. Thanks very much. So again, like I said, I really thought your article was a tremendous piece. And of course, I'm really interested in it because, to tell you the truth, that's uh, the kind of thing I think about a lot with my position here. So just a 
background as, at DePauw, as you know, we have a film and media arts program, but we also have a communication department and an English department. And film and media are taught in kind of different places or have been in the past. Within the film community, I get referred to as, well, you're more of a television guy. Um, and, but I also studied film as in, you know, in college and in grad school. So I never quite know where to put myself, and that idea of medium specificity has always sort of vexed me. Um, at the same time, of course, as you mentioned um, in your piece, we are experiencing right now a moment uh, that will be with us forever, <laughs> where uh, those different media, those different material media have, in fact, started to converge and collapse into one another in digital spaces. So I guess I want to having divulged what made me think about it, I wanted to get a sense, first of all, what started you thinking about medium specificity in this kind of era where digitization has led to this kind of rapid convergence? Yeah, thanks for that. And I can very much relate to this feeling uh, sometimes being out of place with uh, what you want to study and then finding the institutional home for it. Uh, I, I did my graduate work in Duke's program in literature, uh, which media studies makes a lot of sense there. There are a lot of people doing it. But then when somebody else says, oh, uh, what do you? What kind of literature did you do? And you're like, well, oh, uh, how, how are we going to start this conversation? Uh, yeah, and and so what had gotten me? I, I, this actually, the this article emerged out of an earlier exam answer that I did. So I was thinking sort of metadisciplinarily about cinema and media studies and why cinema and media studies are together if they belong together. Um, and and I think two problematics really launched me on that. One is this idea of the digital convergence, right? Um, so much of the history of cinema studies in particular, but even our approach to media has to do with, okay, thinking about the actual material substrate of this medium, what are the specificities of it uh, from its very ontology, right? From the very beginning of cinema theory, the Soviet montage theorists thinking about, you know, film being a particularly well-suited medium to instantiate dialectical materialism, right? Of course, Arnheim, you know, arguing that, in fact, film could be an art because it was not... Uh, identical with our perceptual, you know, the way that our perceptual apparatus presented the world to us, right? So, so medium specificity really goes back to that and really has this material basis that, of course, gets upended, um, you know, as, as Dean Rodowick talks about in uh, The Virtual Life of Film, that really gets upended almost at exactly the same time that film studies starts to get a foot in academia. <laughs> Um, which has been seen as presenting a big crisis to the field, and one that I think we're still, I think still, obviously still grappling with. Um, so I was thinking about that, and then at the same time thinking also about the way that media studies has started to take on a greater and greater variety of objects of study. Uh, you know, when I got interested in the field, it was still called new media studies um, and still very much about digital media, very particularly. Uh, but at the same time, you know, in, in the years since then, we've seen media scholars taking it, John Durham Peters working on dolphins and oceans and UC Perica working on insect media and Keller Easterling approaching international standards regimes. Uh, there's actually, a, I think, a JCMS just closed a CFP for their first ever special issue uh, called But Is It Media? Right. <laughs> Jumping off from the same problematic, I think they use the examples of shoes and file cabinets and colors and sex toys, right? So trying to think about, well, you know, if cinema studies has this difficulty with the digital, digital convergence and if media studies has all of a sudden 
studying everything from dolphins to garden gates, um, what's something that might actually explain some sort of sense of coherency about the discipline. And for me, and the way that I've always found my way into this, and my own sort of sense of belonging is has always been medium specificity, right? As media scholars, we study these individual media, not just in themselves, but sort of as they are themselves, as, as they have different affordances, different, um, yeah, different particularities and considering what the medium itself does as opposed to just the content. Right. So it sounds like a way to answer the question of like, well, what do we do with dust or oceans is, is, is the way we think about it, right? In that specific way, what does it allow us to think about? And so it sounds like in some ways, media, thinking about medium specificity or media studies or does have a way into these kinds of questions. And we can open up to these other moments of thinking about things pretty far flung as media. Is that yeah, accurate. yeah, I think that's absolutely accurate. Uh, I, I start my article by talking about an earlier in Focus dossier from JCMS um, put together by Lucas Hildebrand, I think, in 2018, uh, called the C and the M in SCMS, which I thought was a great uh, <laughs> title. Uh, and and in that, I, I think I think it's Elena Gorfinkel. I'm sorry if I'm getting the name wrong, but I think Elena Gorfinkel has a piece. Um, talking about how media scholars need to like go get our shit back, right? Because other, you know, because uh, now everyone from cultural studies to business studies to anything is working on movies, working right. on TV, working on whatever. And uh, at the same time, I think that's a, a very well taken point in that we should claim to have some sort of expertise about these fields. Uh, but at the same time, like media and digital media, as we've all seen, are becoming more and more intimate in everybody's lives, right? This is uh, just the, the, the truth of our everyday reality. And so it seems like people from many different sorts of different disciplines should be studying all of these things and that we shouldn't be trying to wall ourselves off and say, well, if you want to do this, you have to do it from a media theory perspective. Uh, uh, but if we do that, we also need to answer, you know, why, what is it that was special about the way we're doing it? What can we offer that other people aren't offering? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is really when getting into thinking about the medium in itself, what it actually does, what it can do and what it can't do, how it helps to form subject subjectivity in particular ways, how it relates people, right? All of these things I think are very media theoretical questions. Mm -hmm. And when you start to be able to generalize that as an approach, something that fits everything from things we typically recognize as media, from like the news media, like film, like TV, um, to dolphins, mm -hmm. <laughs> when you abstract that, I think you start to get uh, a really capacious tool set for understanding the way that mediation comes into our lives sort mm. of everywhere. And that, I think that does bring up the question that you raise in, or and you raise this distinction, and I wonder if you could talk more about it, um, in the article about uh, specificity versus specialization. Can yeah. you break that apart for me? Yes, and that, that emerges also from my sort of jumping off point, which is this uh, in focus about field organization. And I think across that there had been an argument uh, that media scholars being balkanized around particular objects of study and you being a TV person yeah. and this person being a film person and that person being a documentary person um, isn't necessarily the way forward for the discipline, in part, I think, for the reasons that we're saying, because mediation is coming into more and more of our lives, um, and also because 
I mean, is John Durham Peters a dolphin person now? <laughs> right. um, uh, so for me, that would be some that would be something like medium specialization, right? Something that is actually about metadisciplinary and about the way that the field is organized, as opposed to medium specificity, which is I think also uh, which is an approach, which is a toolkit, which is a way of thinking, but isn't necessarily a, a, a field organization. Mm -hmm. it, it, and I, don't, I may be wrong about this, but it also strikes me, I was thinking about this as I was preparing for the interview, even within something as specialized as, you know, television studies. If I was thinking about a picture, maybe an old picture of a family sitting in their suburban living room watching a TV show. And I thought, well, if you, if you use that picture as a jumping off point, you can start to think about, well, you know, there's the programming, there's the content, there's the, the technology, there's the audience, there's the setting, there's the suburban living room, there's the house, there's the family unit, and there's the regulation of what you can see on TV and who can watch it. And there starts to be all these ways to sort of build out from it and start to think about all these different elements of the world around you based on this one kind of moment. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that, and again, maybe I may be wrong about this, but it strikes me as that that's kind of maybe an example of thinking about medium specificity that I'm, you know, when you're approaching the object, you might need to be specific about what you are looking at. What angle are you taking? Is that sort of close to it? Oh, absolutely. So you, you read my rather unwieldy title before. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, in that, you know, I've got these four adjectives in the title, uh, diachronic, scale, flexible, relational, and perspectival, uh, which are ways that I think that mediums, that if medium specificity is going to be able to do this work of uh, helping explain why we're all, why cinema and media studies scholars are together, uh, I think we do need to consider them in these ways. And it, what you're talking about here, I think, really goes along with relational, right? There is uh, sometimes this impetus to say, well, and I think it comes from a time in which media forms were much more stable and much more bounded to want to say, all right, there's this one level at which we can say this is TV and that's film and that's radio, right? And we know what they are and they're relatively bounded and so we can consider them alone. And I think as we've had the digital convergence, as the media ecology has become much more complicated, it's become clear that that wasn't ever really true and certainly isn't true now. So we absolutely have to consider media within this greater ecology. We have to understand them as part of a, a, a global and in some ways totalizing system of mediation. And only through doing that are we actually going to be able to drill down and say, well, why is this feature of that different from that feature of that? Mm -hmm. um, Joshua Neves has a great short piece in an earlier in focus, I think it was maybe 2013, uh, called New Specificities. Uh, where he's talking about the transition from, you know, classically 70s apparatus theory, um, thinking about the specificity of the cinematic apparatus itself, of going and sitting in a dark room with a bright screen, uh, into a more reception-based uh, and audience-based studies. And his point is that... Um, the, the the apparatus theory in some ways was too specific and not specific enough, right? Too specific mm. because it only wanted to look at this material apparatus um, without the context of, you know, where it was in the world, um, who the people were, and right, not specific enough for not bringing in the concrete realities of 
uh, of the audience, of reception, of context, of all of these things, right? And so I think that if you take a relational perspective where you can see that, yes, that cinematic apparatus is absolutely a crucial part in forming the subjecthood, but only within the context of where it's where it's made, where it's received, and it can, again, start to see these things as um, isolatable units for analysis in a greater relational economy. So let's drill down on, on those things a little bit. So we talked a little bit about the relational part of your title. Mm-hmm. So we also have, um, we have diachronic. Mm-hmm. So let's drill down a little bit on these different elements. So um, when we talk about a, a diachronic approach, what is, what is, I mean, I know what the word means, right? But what does that mean to you in this, in this context? Yeah. So, so I'd like thinking about this back with the Dean Roderick with uh, virtual life of film, uh, you know, in this moment in which film studies is gaining its foothold in the academy at the same time that the material substrate changes, right? right. And that signaled such a crisis for a, a film theory apparatus that had been based on, you know, a, a, a very stable, actually, material substrate that had um, existed in the same way for quite a long time. Uh, and and Rodowick's point is, well, we have a cinema, we have cinema, and we also, after the digital, after digital media, have something that's still recognizably cinema, right? So instead of saying old cinema is dead and now there's a new cinema and we have to sort of keep them separate, we might ask, well, okay, what has changed about cinema's medium specificity, but also what unites cinema across that divide? Right. So being able to think, all right, I can I can see that there's a specificity before and a different specificity after. I can also see that there's a specificity that holds those two things together. Um, I think uh, Alana Thane has a really great article from, I think, 2010 called Anarchival Cinema, um, where she's also she's taking up. Um, you know, the rise of Walkmans and iPods and mobile entertainment right. things, right? And and she's thinking through apparatus theory and has has this great little bit about how for her the, the sort of primary figure of cinema stops being the like immobilized viewer in the darkened room uh, with this sort of simulated sense of, of movement and becomes an actually mobile viewer um, with the simulated sense of being still, right? Mm-hmm. And and changing the sort of figure from the, you know, the the dark room to the set of earphones, which I think is lovely and doesn't say that, okay, there is no cinema and now that the material substrates are changing, we can't figure out what's specific about it anymore. It's saying, let's think about this as it changes over time and let's see what those changes can tell us about both the nature of what's uniquely cinematic, but also what our media ecology is doing around cinema that changes. So this this object that we're talking about changes over time. So this idea of the, the death of something or the end of something is really sort of overstating the case when it's really just the change of something that we now need to con- reconsider again. I think the idea of the death of something is very much based on believing that its existence is reducible to its materiality. Right. Uh, but yeah, I think that that's, that's really associating cinema simply and exclusively with the celluloid strip um, has, was productive at a certain time in film theory, but you also have to let it, you, you also have to figure out where it, that has its limits. Right. So, so let's move on now to then the scale flexible part of this. Yes. So let's talk about how you approach that. 
And so this, I think, actually has a lot to do with what we're talking about with materiality and levels of abstraction. Uh, I, way back in 1985, Kittler sort of signaled, Kittler does his take on this uh, convergence the thesis, which is saying that the fiber optic cable is the medium to end all media right. because everything is going to have the same material substrate. Yeah. right? Uh, and this is an idea that he later recants on, uh, but definitely persists as something of a commonplace in film in film and media studies uh, that I also want to refute. I use the example of uh, Lev Manovich, who in Media After Software writes that there is only software. Only software. Right? Pointing out correctly that you can't talk about the different characteristics of digital film or digital video or uh, website in terms of their digital nature, that what really separates them is the software environment. So mm -hmm. that's where we can sort of stabilize this, the level of medium specificity. And we could even potentially like start taxonomizing and all of this great stuff that you can do <laughs> when you stabilize, you know, when you stabilize your objective study. Um, but I think that has a couple of problems. Uh, you know, one, it can't really take account of what's different in film becoming digital compared to textual production becoming digital, right? Those are two very different transitions. Right. So it sort of fails in the diachronic test. Uh, but also, you know, the question that there is, the question that there's only software obviously brings up is, well, what about hardware? Right. Right. I think to believe that all digital things are equivalent, we have to actually lose track of the materiality. We actually have to start to think about information as this free-floating thing where it doesn't matter what we instantiate it on. And Wendy Chun and Catherine, uh, Catherine Hales both make this point strenuously many times over the course of their careers that this depends on an imagination of the sort of seamless and frictionless information that's exactly the same as binary, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas when you actually get down to it, these processes, these digital things have very different material structures and that those material structures themselves also lend to different modes of operation, different subject formation, all of the things that we talk about when we talk about medium specificity. So mm -hmm. it struck me as interesting that, mm -hmm. you know, that hardware gets left out of the equation when hardware is so often a very real part of the experience. There. No, I, I think completely. And the, I mean, you know, Manovich is having this argument, actually, you know, with with the Kittler assertion of now there is only hardware, right. which I think also misses the point. <laughs> uh, but you know, Kittler is saying that once the sort of universal Turing machine is described, then every hardware instantiation is theoretically interchangeable, right. except that the, you know, as he says, the Turing machine doesn't exist outside of Turing's paper. <laughs> uh, and so when we're in the real world, everything does have its particularities, right? right? And and yeah, so again, trying to get a, get away from this immaterialism that we right. take. Yeah, the idea of compatibility is it seems to sort of underscore that right mm -hmm. away. It also made me think of something that you mentioned in the article about everything digital having an analog ground, right? Is that mm -hmm. right? That digital isn't just something that exists, right? It has to be sort of mm -hmm. made into mm -hmm. the digital world. Uh, and that strikes me as just a very interesting part of this that we often want to, again, sort of push the analog to the background or mm -hmm. get it out of the room completely, when in fact, there is no digital information without an analog input somewhere. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And and uh, Wendy Chun writes about this when she writes about sorcery and source code, 
but yeah, you know, an idea there, it feels like we're getting down to the brass tacks when we're saying, oh, everything's becoming digital, right? Mm -hmm. Everything's made of zeros and ones now. And you're like, really? Where? Show me the zeros and ones. <laughs> They're actually electrical charges that are stored sometimes on silicon chips, sometimes on tape, on all sorts of different substrates. Right. Um, they're only turned into logical units through threshold definition. And then when they're transmitted, they're transmitted as continuous electronic signals, right? We don't really have many things in nature that exist in discrete format, right. uh, certainly down at the level where we're transmitting information. So yeah, the digital is always something that we produce out of the analog. Right. Even to the point where, you know, I was just reading an article today about Elon Musk and AI and what shouldn't have struck me weird, but did, was the idea that, well, they had to make a deal with NVIDIA, who makes the chip, which run the AI software programs. Like, oh, yeah, of course, a physical thing that is made by humans. So we now have, now we move the, to the perspectival, because we covered the relational. Mm -hmm. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so the example that I like to use, I like to use the John Durham Peters example in this one, because first of all, I think we get, it's nice to get a little bit far from the things that right. we typically talk about, whether they're digital media or film. And he has this slightly confounding quotation that's extremely recursive and goes back on itself. He says, uh, let's try this difficult definitional work one more time. A medium reveals a medium as a medium. Right. I did, I did stop on that one. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, without other media, a medium is not a medium. Is the ship uh, or the sea the medium? To, to dolphins, the sea could be a medium. They are their own ships. But only non-dolphins can see that the sea is a medium to them. An undisturbed medium is rarely understood as a medium. So perhaps anthropogenic intervention in the oceans has made its medium specificity clearer to cetaceans. To us, the ship is clearly a medium. But if it is a medium that reveals and makes navigable another medium, the sea. And the thing that I really like about that is that he's pointing out, which I think goes along with all of the rest of the points that I'm trying to make about mm -hmm. diachronic and scale flexible and uh, relational about everything, that a medium is only a medium to something. It's only a medium in a particular place. It's only a medium in a particular function. Um, and that understanding the medium specificity of something is very much going to depend on who you are, where you stand. Mm -hmm how that thing functions or doesn't function in your life, what you can or can't do with it, whether you have hands or flippers, mm -hmm. all of these things. Right. right? Um, and so I'd say, you know, even since writing this article, I've started to think a little bit more about characteristic modes of mediation rather than even, even medium specificity, but certainly rather than like an ontology of a medium. And I think what I'm really trying to get at is, is trying to take much more of a functionalist approach to thinking about media and mediation rather than a substantialist one, rather than saying um, over here we have this object and over there we have that object um, and, and you know, we can taxonomize them based on their materiality, based on their substance, um, I'd much rather say uh, these two different things that have very different substances participate in a similar mode of mediation, right? And if we're going to do any sort of taxonomization, that seems like a much more fruitful place to do it to me, of how can things that are very disparate do things in similar ways, and how are things that seem very similar actually doing very disparate forms of mediation? Oh, I like that. It starts to suggest to me, oh, there are many more questions to ask. Mm -hmm. We just maybe need to adjust our 
our approach a little bit. Um, it does open up a whole new world of, of questions for me and gives me a reason to keep going and teaching and, and researching. So thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. that. That is about the best praise I've gotten. Thank you. So the last part of thing I want to talk about with this article is a very important point you make, which is about the political work that media studies can do, cinema studies can do, that can be a little bit endangered if, if we sort of move away from medium specificity. I wonder if you could explain that a little bit. Yeah. So in the article, I identify what I think are two really important strains of political thinking that run all the way, you know, through cinema and media studies all the way back to early cinema. One is this concern for subject formation, right? This is, you know, we can see this in all sorts of places, but I think it's very pronounced in apparatus theory and, you know, feminist applications of psychoanalytic theory that go along with apparatus theory, right? Thinking about how this actual, this particular configuration uh, is formed by and forms particular subject formation, right? And that has always been enormously political in the field. Um, it's, it's one of the first places that feminist film theory really started cracking ground. And I think something that people have really come to understand the way that media, you know, for instance, media enforce sort of gendered ways of looking at the world, right? right. This, and this goes very much along with a lot of other post-structuralist thinking about gender formation, right? So there's the, that strain. Uh, and then there's another strain that I talk about as being about uh, technological logics, so this is looking at ways that there are sort of homologous operations that work in media and maybe in other spheres. So uh, Alex Galloway and um, Eugene Thacker have, you know, talk about protocol, trying to think about how, yeah, how power operates in a, in a society that's something like what Deleuze talks about as a control society, mm -hmm. right? And for them, the answer is it operates homologously to the technological operation of protocol. So you don't have any central actor, you don't have anyone overseeing everything, and yet you can still propagate requisite behaviors across the field of you know, operation. And these come together for me. And I think one example, uh, Mar Hicks wrote this absolutely fantastic book called Programmed Inequality mm. uh, about the history of computing in Great Britain. And they write about how uh, because most of the available labor that was able to do a lot of the computing were women and it was becoming a more professionalized discipline and those, that was supposed to be full of men, <laughs> that a very high degree of centralization got built into computing mainframes and, and that that goes to continue to build and reinforce and advance a very gendered subjective form of understanding the world. Uh, and I think those are, you would lose sight of that completely if you weren't able to think through medium specificity. Mm -hmm. If you were to believe that, you know, digital convergence means that everything is all just this universal medium, you wouldn't be able to see the hardware aspect of that, of how this, are, this is actually built into the hardware of the system. It reminds me very much of, of some of the great work that's being done right now, uh, Safia Noble's work, The Algorithms of Oppression, you know, these kinds of things looking very, very closely and narrowly at search engines. How can we understand the persistence of racist, sexist uh, ideologies inside these digital technologies and how to, you know, how do we start to combat those things, mm -hmm. right? I mean, on one hand, we can ask much different questions, but also to continue that important political work 
um, that goes beyond just, you know, knowing how this stuff works. <laughs> right. And that is, yeah. And that is so much of the reason that Kate Hales and Wendy Chun are interested in, in refuting this immaterialism, mm-hmm. uh, because the moment that you start to think that all digital things are equivalent, you, you start to think that they are therefore neutral or scientific or any of these things, right. That makes it almost impossible to see the ways that they construct and enforce structures of power that we really would rather not have constructed and enforced. Right. And that have very, themselves, very material consequences. Yes. Right. So speaking of politics, I'm going to shift gears here and move into your other identity (laughs) as a screenwriter, as a filmmaker. So you are one of the co-writers of the film uh, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which is an adaptation and maybe the first one I've known of of a academic or a a book with um, without a particular plot, <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> which is itself is a uh, fascinating uh, undertaking. So, I wonder if we can start to think about how, first of all, just you know the work that, that about that film and, and and how you approached it, but also maybe some connections to what you do uh, as a scholar. So, first of all, just maybe we can talk about the film itself. What got you involved in that film? Um, how did you all approach that? that task of creating, and I, I'm no spoilers here, but a very taut thriller, a really good film. Thank you. And I'm not just saying that because I'm in a room with you. Uh, I, I loved this movie out of what is essentially a political manifesto. It was, uh, it was hard. <laughs> um, and and, and uh, I think a very fun challenge. And I, it, it felt sort of spiritually right from the beginning. And I think maybe a good way of saying why it seemed to make sense to me is talking about it as as a genre film in particular, and specifically as a heist movie, right? right? So this is a movie that is structured very much classically like a heist movie. And we're adopting Andreas Malm's Verso Manifesto, the basic point of which, to oversimplify a little, is that Almost every successful social justice movement in history has used property destruction as one of its tactics, and that the absolute admonition on that in the environmental movement is counterproductive. And so we knew we wanted to make a movie out of this that was in some way going to be about eco-terrorists, and one in which we could get audience members to at least think about why they were doing what they were doing in a way that wasn't necessarily jumping to be like, well, I disagree with what they're doing, so Mm -hmm. I won't think about it. Right. Right. And the nice thing about something like a heist movie is you don't watch a bank heist movie and spend the whole movie going, well, this is really (laughs) fun, but I don't think that these people should be robbing banks because that's illegal and, and this money belongs to somebody. Uh, is that there's something in the genre built in where you want to go with the characters and you even want to root for them. Right. Right. And so we were trying to make a movie that would be accessible to people who didn't already hold the opinions that are in the book and that might be fun and enjoyable and that might, they might find themselves rooting for eco-terrorists during, Right. right. And to maybe leave the theater and think about, what that might mean about the state of the world or about them, right? Right. And I love the fact that the characters themselves are under no illusion about what they're doing. They don't, mm-hmm. they know they'll be called terrorists. They, in fact, some of them think, yeah, that's what I'm doing and, that, and here's why I'm doing it. I was fascinated thinking about your work and thinking about like 
taking somewhat far-flung ideas, you know, as we think about media as these sort of possible wildly different things, the film is a group of fairly far-flung people who come together within a framework that doesn't really essentialize them as a certain kind of person, but constitutes this kind of new unit based on the conditions at hand. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk about thinking through those characters and how you, how you all wanted to build that unit. Yeah, I, I think that's a very interesting perspective because there is certainly a way in which these characters are a little bit schematic mm -hmm. in a way that I think is useful. You know, as, as you're talking about, we're, we're turning a nonfiction, no plot, no character thing into a character-based narrative drama. Yeah. And so part of what we were doing is trying to translate some of the ideas in the book into lived experience, right? And, and I'm really interested in this connection between the like highly theoretical and lived experience too. Um, but we were trying to do that transformation and the way that we started just going about the process was, you know, reading the book and Andreas put us in touch with many activists and many people who had been impacted by the fossil fuel industry, not just through climate change, but also through pollution and land dispossession, uh, talking to people in our lives we know who'd been impacted and trying to think about ways of representing those lived experiences mm -hmm. in character lives, right? So again, without spoilers, uh, the characters all have their moment mm -hmm. in the film in which their reason for being there is explained. And again, something that works in a heist movie, it's the part of the movie where we're getting, you know, getting the crew together, <laughs> right? And it's, oh, who's right. this person and why are they there? Right. Right. And so it gives us enough time to say, well, this is the impact on this person and that's the impact on that person, right? Um, and, and trying to build from that something that feels representational of a broad swath of reasons to be there that can be schematic in that way without reducing the people into something that's not about who they are, that's not about their lived experience. Right. There are members of this unit that you wouldn't think would go together, mm -hmm. but they work together because they have this common cause. Yeah, I think that that's definitely part of what we wanted to do politically with this. Uh, we are in a political situation in which the people in power benefit enormously from us believing that we have no common cause with each other uh, and wanting again to have this very broad representat representational structure and to say that, okay, the character who codes is probably being conservative and who's mad about eminent domain and land dispossession doesn't have to agree with the rest of the characters, right. doesn't even have to believe in climate change to want to still fight back about this industry. And so we're very used to narratives about the impossibility of coming together to do things. Mm -hmm. right? And if we're talking about media and subject formation, we know that the stories that we tell start to affect our understanding of the way that the world works. And so to have stories that are also about people from different cultural backgrounds, for, you know, who signify their identity in extremely different ways, learning that they have common cause and coming together and it not being a constant argument or struggle. These characters know what they want to do and they're trying to do it together. Which I'm going to use as another segue to talk about, if you wouldn't mind, and I don't know if you are a member of the WGA or not. Uh, not long-standing, but, long yes, but yes, I am a member. Yeah. So you are on strike. Uh, I am on strike. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wouldn't mind talking about the strike a little bit and how it impacts, A, first of all, what you think is at stake in the strike and why, mm. you know, how, what it means to you, but also how we might think about, from your perspective, how the strike impacts you, this film, mm. and anything else you want to talk about with that. 
Yeah, I've started thinking about the strike very much in terms of digital media, actually. Uh, and obviously there's the streaming aspect of it, but it seems to me that tech companies have come into many industries, right? And I think Uber is a very clear one. Uh, and the way that it generally works is it's a tech company, so they have lots of VC backing because they're bright and shiny oh, yes. and they're a tech company. Uh, and they come into an industry to disrupt it. And they do that by using an unsustainable business model that they can only use because they have a lot of VC money That's behind right. them. And taking what had been established there and usually established with significant labor struggles to create some sort of a steady job, some sort of way of you know having benefits, something that you could retire from. And then the tech company will bash that apart with their unsustainable business model until everything that was was structured there dies and goes away. And then they'll raise prices back to the level from before, <laughs> before their disruption, except none of the workers get any of the protections that they had. And we've seen that in many industries. And I think that is what tech companies are trying to do in film as well. Mm -hmm. right? And labor in film is still very well organized. And so there's some ability to push back against this. I think it's partly why the strike is going so long and is going to probably continue to go so long mm -hmm. is because the labor is asking for a different business model. Netflix and Hulu are not in the same business that Warner Brothers has been in for a long time. Right. They are in the business of having a high stock price and making a large return to their investors. And so when writers ask for something like residuals on viewership numbers, attention is introduced where you want as high of viewership numbers as possible to juice your stock price, um, but you want as low as possible viewership numbers to have to pay people. So I think that we are seeing somewhere, we're seeing something where the rubber's really hitting the road on these business models and on what they're about and on how labor can get into that. And I think too that I was going back and reading some of the coverage of the 2007 writer's strike, and it was much less sympathetic than the coverage of this writer's strike. Mm -hmm. um, there was a feeling that these Hollywood writers are being so whiny, they're the elite, they're, you know, X, Y, and Z. And this time, there is a lot of solidarity coming from lots of different directions. And I think people, even just in general, people who are not even themselves in unions, understand that the ways of us having solid and comfortable lives is being disrupted largely by tech companies, digital media companies, mm -hmm. and that if we're ever going to fight back against that, we do need to organize. Right. right. It, it strikes me, too, as you're talking, um, this, the specter of AI, I wonder if that has something to do with a more popular sentiment toward the writers, because there is this element of technology gone too far, this, this fear of something that is going to be used for the wrong purposes. I mean, do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that fear. But I, will, I, I disagree in that I don't actually think it's that ridiculous to imagine a world in which most <laughs> of our media is written by AI for True. lots of different reasons. Um, I mean, the technology at this point obviously is not there. Mm -hmm. But these these things develop much more quickly than they do than we do. Right. They share knowledge with each other, and with the way that we've constructed the internet, they're going to be able to run hundreds of millions of repeated trials in order to optimize themselves. And as we 
create unsupervised machine learning models that have absolutely no oversight and go off and let them do things, I think they're going to get profoundly good at manipulating human sentiment. I think much better than even uh, the most talented manipulative writers that I've ever <laughs> met. And so my worries about that go way beyond Hollywood writers not being able to get their paychecks. And I think Cambridge Analytica, though we've seemed to largely have forgotten about, right. um, is a bit of a pre-sentiment of this. I think we are going to get to a place in which, in all sorts of ways that we don't expect yet, language-based machines are going to be able to manipulate human emotions for... I would say, if we keep going the same way we are, uh, almost exclusively nefarious ends. Well, I'm not happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we really got, we got into my speculation. I will say I'm 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 writing a I'm writing a syllabus on digital pessimism right now oh, too. Oh, so perfect. It's been, perfect. Um, ensconced in some of this stuff. So, Jordan, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. Yeah, I'm so thrilled to have you as a colleague. Uh, here at DePauw, and um, so glad you agreed to talk to uh, us for Acamedia. Yeah, this has been fantastic. All right, so many great scholars and so much great work cited in that conversation. And one quick thing, if you want to find any of the sources that they talk about, um, Jonathan compiled a really extensive list of links on our website, go, so you can go check that out at... Uh, I think it's aca-media.org. But yeah, super smart, really interesting conversation there. Yeah, good stuff. And um, this conversation sounds kind of a little esoteric and theoretical at first. But honestly, I feel like I'm beating my head against this every single day in class. Mm. You know, like you, yeah. I teach a lot of um, broadcast um, TV history and... I feel like I just have to keep going back to maps and concrete objects and literally bringing various old television sets into class and asking people <laughs> to interact with them and really think about that, the materiality of that interface. Um, yeah. Because the, the impulse, um, more broadly culturally, is to just see all of this stuff as dematerialized content that comes out of the content extruder, mm -hmm. um, which obscures all kinds of important things that we should be paying attention to. Yeah. Well, and that includes that the larger question beyond just our research and our teaching, but the orientation of our departments, because we've had some of these conversations. We have our department is called film, television and theater. And we've had conversations about like our intro class, which combines film and television. And then we have separate tracks for each of those concentrations. And we're talking about like, well, how do we match those up so that they're even? But as you know, one of the really tricky things is, well, what do you do then with digital media? What do you do with gaming? Like, is that TV? Because that's more screens or is that film? We've kind of gone like screen culture with film. Um, and so that question of like the orientation of departments going forward is going to be a huge question that we have to grapple with. It will. And every single institution has kind of a different matrix of um, political and cultural and personal histories that are underlying all this stuff. And so some of us work in humanities departments in mm -hmm colleges of arts and letters and some are in the sciences and some are in the arts and there's no particular rhyme or reason to the way that those structures kind of fall into place you know the tetris game is sort of um not rational 
Yeah. And it's also a combination of institutions and then, of course, individual people. As I thought, another fascinating thread of that conversation is individuals making choices about what they want to research and what they think is relevant to the questions that they think need to be answered. And so just real quick, the research project I'm working on right now is about a... a, um, a television show that aired on a local NBC affiliate, uh, WNDU in South Bend, that was owned by the university. And so it was partly seen as this like educational project. And they originally had this notion of creating a four-year television um, course of study at the university. And it basically didn't happen until our department was kind of christened in 1998, um, FTT. And then, and then even then, it took a few years after that. But it was this history of like the first version of it, they put a guy in charge who was a print guy and he hated TV. And so he didn't do anything to develop television at the university. And then they put, you know, a theater guy in charge who doesn't like film. And then they put a film guy in charge who doesn't like theater. And it takes until like the late 90s, you finally have a couple of chairs who see the compatibility among, them, among these media, but also then the value of still carving out separate concentrations. And so that question too, about like, what are we going to put together? What are we going to separate? Um, you know, I, I saw it play out in history then looking through my own department history. And I think we all have those histories, you know, every, um, most, most academics have exposure to multiple departments. And so we can all reflect on the different kinds of structures. Um, you know, back at university of Wisconsin, where we both went to grad school, uh, film and TV studies lived in the same department. You and I were, uh, in, different areas within that department but they had a pretty rigid dividing line um in term about legitimacy of objects and and theoretical yeah. approaches and stuff and then there was an entirely separate department one floor down in the same building <laughs> of com studies which had a bunch of media scholars um but with animosities and conflicts and you know sometimes just different orientations that were every bit as pronounced as those between the film and TV scholars in our own department. Yeah. Um, and of course, then that changes again when you go to a different institution. But all of this stuff is kind of ad hoc and idiosyncratic. Yeah. But then there becomes a lot at stake in defining yourself. So, you know, as you mentioned, then I was in the film studies part of the department, did a dissertation that had something to do with TV, then applied for the job at Notre Dame, which was, again, the evolution of our department was I was supposed to teach film, but start a television program. And I had to bill myself as a TV scholar. And I didn't like I sat in on one Julie Dachi class, right? Like that was my my bona fides. But I just sort of like taught myself those bits and pieces. And especially like having, you know, the the colleagues that I had who were in telecom, as it was called back then of, you know, Jason Mattel and Derek Compare and, you know, these these really great people, I basically learned from them. Um, but you do kind of then, um, you reinvent yourself along the way, um, you know, partly to get jobs and partly based on your interests. You know, and one thing about the the name of our department in, in doing that research, I had a conversation with Don Crafton, who was uh, brought in as chair in 98 and turned the name of the department from communication and theater uh, into film, television, theater. And he was telling me about the process of renaming the department. And he said it would just, you know, of course, as academics, right, it takes forever to do anything. And so the debate about, okay, well, we're film and, you know, we, we have these three mediums, like what order should the department name be in? And he said, there's like all kinds of discussion about, well, film is the biggest or theater is the most prominent or whatever. Television hasn't barely started. And they decided on film going first because of the alphabet, that it would be listed higher in a list of departments, <laughs> that film would be first. So um, 
And that was better than being down in the T. So if we did add dolphins, we would want to put dolphins first. So DFTT. And there, and so clearly we are the people who are best equipped to, to help others navigate these complicated, thorny, difficult, uh, political, economic, cultural morasses about mm. medium specificity. Yep. Morasses indeed. Yeah. Morasses right here. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Acamedia, where you can come for more asses and the critical analysis thereof. Yes, which actually then is a nice seg into something I wanted to mention because we've got an episode retitling project going on. Uh, because back when Bill Kirkpatrick was like picking fun names for our episodes, uh, totally something involving more asses would have been the title of this episode. But if you're searching for a podcast on media specificity, you would not have gotten a hit on that. Yeah. If you're searching for more asses, we'd have gotten a new influx of listeners, I think, at least passing through. But uh, to that point, David Lipson, who is now one of our co-producers, he pointed out that you know the SEO, uh, search optimization of our, our podcast, would be much higher if we actually call the episodes what the content was, or at least gave them subtitles with the content. So I want to just give a shout out to David for doing that. He is retitling our old episodes, so it'll still have the fun cutesy name and then in parentheses the actual content like the guests and the topic so that if you were searching for something like media specificity you would find it and not more asses you know that that makes perfect sense <laughs> it really does <laughs> really, yeah like Oh, yeah. a shout out then to Bill Kirkpatrick for his great work in the old titles of our episodes. And then he is helping David out with making those changes on the website. So thank you, Bill. All right. Yes, indeed. I, a, I'll go ahead. Oh, and one other project I want to uh, tout that we're doing is a uh, transcription initiative for accessibility purposes, especially, but also then, you know, coming in handy for, for searchability is uh, making transcripts of all our episodes. So every episode going forward will arrive with a transcript along with it. And then we're going through old episodes and converting those into transcripts. It's uh, laborious work. We have a, um, you know, a service that gives us like an 80% accurate thing. But you should see how many different ways it reads Acamedia or Cacman. Like it never gets Cacman. It's, you know, Cacman and <laughs> That's okay, all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, all kinds of variations. Um, you know, a comedian is a very common one for Acamedia. So we got to go through then and, you know, kind of fix some of those bits and pieces. So it isn't quick work, but it's important work and we want to do it. And just note if there's a particular episode you are very interested in, if you want it for, again, accessibility purposes, or if you are doing research on that topic and you want to be able to quote someone and, and have a, uh, you know, a quote to quotation to copy paste, um, let us know. We have a form on our website. If you go to the website, acahyphamedia.org, Click transcripts, and there's a form where you can request an episode, and we'll prioritize that in the queue. Please do reach out about that because you know the the software is going to have a. It's probably going to take months to get through this episode. Yes, um, I think so. This this one is going to generate a lot of noise, <laughs> um, and not a lot of signal. So um, so please do reach out about that. Acamedia would not be possible without the support of the University of Notre Dame and the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. But we are also uh, the product of, of, fortunately, a growing group of co-conspirators and producers. Um, Todd Thompson, uh, down at the University of Texas at Austin, provides the golden ears that, that make it all sound good. 
Mm -hmm. We have our old hands uh, still on deck. Stephanie Brown is at Washington College and Frank Mondelli at University of Delaware. We're also especially grateful to Jonathan Nichols-Pethick at DePauw, both as a producer and also as interviewer for this segment. And thank you to his interviewee, Jordan Scholl, also at DePauw. And another thank you to David Lipson, University of Strasbourg. And then we also have back there waiting in the wings, Michael Newman at UW-Milwaukee, who's going to be helping us out more as we go. Acomedia, uh navigating morasses since 2012? 13. 13, okay. Which, oh, uh, hey, 10th anniversary. Whoop-a-doop. Yay, 10 years yeah. of morasses. Yeah, that's right. That's us. All right, stay warm out there. Enjoy the season. And those of you who are grading... Condolences.